Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. There are some bands that you can take at face value. What you see is what you get. Then there are others which have backstories that go on forever and ever. Pearl Jam is one, U2, Green Day, Nirvana, and also Muse. Muse is an interesting case because we here in North America were a little slow to catch on to what they were doing. They'd already been massive stars in the UK, Europe, and Japan before they hit North America. This sort of thing doesn't happen very often. It's like we suddenly and collectively discovered a band that was already in full flight. A deep library filled with road-tested and chart-tested songs, a solid live show, and some very impressive musicianship. It was like we walked into a party that was already in top gear. North America has now embraced Muse. Every album and tour is a big event. But then there's still that backstory. We're still sorting through it. Even though you may be a fan, how much about Muse do you really know? Let's find out. I call this show 10 Things About Muse. This is the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Hello again, I'm Alan Cross. So, I'm sitting at a table in a sushi restaurant in downtown Toronto talking with Matt Bellamy, the leader of Muse. Next to him is bass player Christopher Wolstenholme, and across the table and sitting next to me is drummer Dominic Howard. It's the spring of 2004, and the place is packed. And even though we're in full view of everyone in the restaurant, nobody seems to notice. And Matt is clearly a little unsettled by this as he picks at his dragon roll. Although he likes the anonymity, he's obviously not used to it. But then again, like I said, this was 2004. Muse might have been a giant deal in the UK and Europe and parts of Asia, and a band capable of headlining massive festivals. But in North America at the time, Muse was still very much a cult band, the domain of early adopter British indie kids. I know this must be a little weird for you, I say, but isn't this kind of a cool reminder of the band's early days when you got to play smaller clubs and be closer to the audience? Matt picked up his chopsticks and stirred his miso soup, which had gone cold by now, and he says, not really. We want to be the biggest band in the world. This just reminds me that we have to try a lot harder. So they did. And now Muse is one of the planet's premier touring acts even in laggard, backward North America. And the chances of me and Matt quietly having a couple of California rolls in an open restaurant are pretty much gone forever. I promised you 10 cool things about Muse. So here's the first one. Matt is the son of a rock star. Sort of. In 1961, his dad, George Bellamy, then a 20-year-old country singer from a small English town, answered an ad placed in Melody Maker by legendary wacko producer Joe Meek. Meek was putting together a studio group for a project he called The Tornadoes, and he needed a rhythm guitarist. George got the job, and he played on a song called Telstar, an instrumental surf-like single that came out in the summer of 1962 that capitalized on the excitement around the launch of Telstar, which was the world's first intercontinental communication satellite. The song went like this, and listen closely to the guitars.
Telstar was a massive hit, becoming just the second British song to reach number one on the American charts. It was just the second instrumental single to hit the top of the charts on both sides of the Atlantic, and it sold well over 5 million copies worldwide. But then Joe Meek went extra crazy, and the tornadoes disintegrated. George found work playing wherever and with whomever he could before he ended up as a plumber. Matt was born on June 9, 1978, and he eventually picked up a guitar like his old man. Now, I want you to listen to this Muse single. Do you notice anything about the similarity in the guitar sounds? A nod to Dad, maybe? Muse in Knights of Sidonia from the Black Holes and Revelations album of 2006. The title was taken from a region on Mars that's known as Sidonia. That's the place where some people believe they see an ancient structure that looks like a humanoid face from orbit. Matt likes that kind of stuff, and uh, we'll actually get to more of it later. Item number two about Muse. Have you ever gone to a Battle of the Bands competition and thought, none of these people are going to amount to much? I know I have. But every long once in a while, a battle of the bands does produce something interesting, like Muse. This goes back to 1994 and the Broadmeadow Sports Centre in Tainmouth, England. This is in Devon, in the extreme southwest of England. Population, about 15,000. And here we encounter a band called Rocket Baby Dolls, featuring Matt Bellamy, Christopher Wollstenholm, and Dominic Howard, who are all 16-year-old citizens. Rocket Baby Dolls evolved out of a group called Fixed Penalty, which in turn had evolved from a group called Gothic Plague. They weren't really serious about playing the show because they thought the idea of a battle of the bands was idiotic to begin with. But because they played with such violence, and because the crowd responded so well to this violence, they ended up winning, which shocked them. But it also made them think, you know, maybe we have a shot at doing this for a living. But we need to change our name to something less stupid. So, about a week later, and in time for their next gig, Rocket Baby Dolls became Muse. So, why Muse? Well, it could have been a teacher at school that introduced Matt and Dominic to the word and what that meant. But my favorite explanation is that since Matt and his family like to play with a Ouija board and were into all kinds of occult stuff, there's a story that Matt used to jam in his room with three witches actually three girls from school, who would like to dabble in witchcraft and occult stuff and whatever. He thought one of them was kind of hot, so he went with her and the other two friends to abandoned houses where they cast spells with their potions and such. Matt tagged along and played guitar as they did their thing. And as far as anyone knows, uh, there were no demons or anything summoned during these sessions. But uh, they were his muse. Okay, fine, whatever. Uh, we're going to keep coming back to Matt's interesting views of the universe again and again. Meanwhile, try this. Muse, from their third studio album, Absolution, from 2003. And that single, Time Is Running Out, was the first song that registered in any meaningful way in North America. It's a very important record. Item number three about Muse, the first demo. This dates to 1995. 
Muse had been touring as much as they possibly could for a bunch of 17-year-olds. And in May of that year, they recorded four songs, possibly under the direction of Matt's dad, George, since the note on the cassette reads, Copyright Geobell Music. It also says, Produced and Mixed by Muse at the Bass Player's House, May 1995. This tape, which was called This Is a Muse Demo, was then distributed to promoters and venues over the northwest of England by the band's new manager, a guy by the name of Phil Corthals. He was successful in not only getting the band more shows, but their first gig outside the country, which was France. These four songs have long been discarded by Muse, but now that the band is mega-huge all over the world, this cassette has gone up in value considerably. There weren't that many made up, and if you can find one, the asking price is close to $1,000. I do have some samples. Prepare yourself. Okay, so they they, they had a long way to go, but it was a start. And by the time they got to their second demo in 1997, they were much better. That's more early Muse, this time from a 1997 demo. That's a sample of a track called Do We Need This? And that would later show up in a more polished form on the band's 1999 album, Showbiz. So, there are the first three of ten things that I want to tell you about Muse. Coming up, Matt Bellamy, Criminal. This show is called Ten Things About Muse which should be self-explanatory. And item number four on this list involves Matt Bellamy's career as a car thief. When Matt was 18, he moved from Tainmouth to nearby Exeter to live with a painter friend above a porn store. This was not a nice part of town. Lots of junkies and discarded syringes everywhere. And a lot of those same people who dropped the syringes dropped into the flat to do drugs with Matt and his painter friend. Turns out that the painter was also a drug dealer. He eventually ended up in prison. And Matt wasn't exactly a golden boy either. He got involved with a small-time car theft ring. They'd steal crappy cars and then sell them for a small profit. And it worked for a bit until he stole a Ford Escort from a guy you don't want to mess with. He showed up at Matt's door, threatening to do great harm to Matt and his family unless he handed over 500 pounds. Matt didn't have that kind of money, so he just gave the guy the keys to the van that Muse was using to tour. So much for a career in Grand Theft Auto. Item number five about Muse, the cryptic messages in their music. If you're a fan of Tool or Nine Inch Nails, you'll know that you can get really, really deep into the material that they release. I've done programs on those bands before, and the secret messages and meanings and leads that we can get from their music is is incredible. Same with Muse, actually. And to even begin to understand what's going on, we have to once again turn to Matt Bellamy. Like I said earlier, his family was into the occult. It was said his mum, Marilyn, could speak to the dead. Matt, though, soon broke away from all that and turned to science for explanations. He read all kinds of books on astronomy and cosmology and quantum theory and various branches of physics. 
He then began to study the media and the way facts and stories are spun, and he still believes that everyone should be required to take a course in media studies so they know how the world works and the importance of questioning everything. Muse is also fascinated by the ideas of hidden messages, of codes and ciphers, and they like to entertain and engage their fans this way. And I can give you an example of this. When the band went on tour in 2005, fans noticed something weird about the set lists that were printed out each night. At first, it looked like the band was just goofing around by giving nonsense names to both new and old material, but uh, no, that's not what they were doing. A clue came with the fake title, Codebreak Shy Outsider. Hmm, Codebreak. That's all it took for the internet forums to go nuts. It turned out that all of these fake song titles were anagrams clues that led down a path. One song was called Cold Aqua Tomato, and it resolved itself into an email address, qua, Q-U-A, at AOL.com, which was Matt's old email address. Others were unscrambled. Keep the secret, message board song, password is shy, and send naked pictures. Seriously. All these clues eventually led to a bicycle hanging from beneath an abandoned railway bridge in Amherst, Missouri. It was one of the four bikes the band used to keep in shape while on tour. The clues also pointed to the combination of the lock that kept the bike in place. And the seat was autographed by all three members of the band. Now, that was just the first bike. There were three more, all hidden but traceable by these clues. For example, one clue read, Obtain Drowsy Powders. What does that mean? Well, unscramble that and you get right password on body. Combine that with another clue, starship crowds, which equaled password Christ, meant that you had to write the word Christ on your body, take a photo, and send it to that email address, to the qua at aol.com, which would then generate an encrypted return email detailing the location of the second bike. And only four people worldwide succeeded in breaking that one. The most difficult code breaking involved figuring out how to download an online game into which another code had to be entered, which would lead to another clue directing the person to show up at a specific recording studio in England where they would receive a signed Muse guitar. I have no idea what the outcome was there. And there's more. For the launch of the song United States of Eurasia, Muse hid USB sticks in Berlin, Tokyo, Hong Kong, Moscow, Paris, and Dubai with agents, whatever that means, uh, who were supposed to look after these USB keys. Each stick contained a code that had to be entered on a website. Once all the codes were in, parts of the new song were revealed. Nice, but it was time for this stuff. Starlight from the Muse album Black Holes and Revelations. Item six about Muse involves where Matt Bellamy lives. He's got enough money to live anywhere he wants, and for a while it was Lake Como in Italy. George Clooney has a place there. So does Sting and Richard Branson. Matt's place was in the village of Mostracio and used to be owned by a famous Italian composer named Vincenzo Bellini. Most of the Resistance album was actually recorded there. Studio Bellini, they called it. 
Oh, and Winston Churchill once lived there. He used to go there to paint. And the villa was also once seen in Star Wars Attack of the Clones as the setting for the planet Naboo. However, when Matt split with his Italian fiancée, Gaia Polani, he left the area and put the two apartments up for sale. One was on the market for $2.5 million. Muse and Uprising from their 2009 album, The Resistance, recorded almost entirely in Matt's villa on Lake Como in Italy. When we come back, we'll get into some of Matt's conspiracy theories. This will explain a lot of Muse's music. This show is called 10 Things About Muse, and we're now up to item number seven. Remember a while back when I said that Matt Bellamy developed a question-everything attitude when he was a kid? He accepts nothing that happens in this universe at face value, and he apparently takes a pretty dim view of humanity in general. The whole military-industrial complex and the international dominance of corporations has him very suspicious of everything. For example, at one time, he believed that 9-11 was an inside job. He was firmly on the side of the 9-11 truthers. He did not want to get him involved in a conversation about WTC7, trust me. But he has since recanted those beliefs, but will still tell you that there are plenty of unanswered questions about the attack. He's concerned about the Bilderbergs and the Trilateral Commission and what goes on in Davos, Switzerland every year. A song called Unnatural Selection from the Resistance has some of its roots in a theory that the British royal family are actually descendants from giant alien lizards. This is the Babylonian Brotherhood theory espoused by British writer David Ake. It got to the point where right-wing conspiracy nuts were actually using Matt's music in their internet videos, which really, really annoyed Matt greatly. Not because the music was being used for conspiratorial purposes, but because he felt that the right-wing had hijacked all the best conspiracies. Well, Matt Bellamy specifically, and Muse generally, may seem a little mad with their beliefs on what really happens in this world. These theories are tempered by Muse's love of hard science. This is the eighth of our ten items about Muse. The band's 2012 album, The Second Law, is themed after the second law of thermodynamics, which involves the increasing of entropy in the universe. We can go down that rat hole maybe another time. On The Resistance, there's a song called Exogenesis, which is the theory that life on Earth originated elsewhere. And this gets us into the whole discussion of panspermia and comets and meteor bombardments. Drones, their 2015 album, which, by the way, was recorded largely in Vancouver, not only involves themes of unmanned flying aircraft, but people who act without thinking or do the bidding of others without questioning. Get Matt talking about the record, and he'll bring up topics like deep ecology and the empathy gap, which is a form of cognitive bias seen in some aspects of human behavior. It's really complex psychological stuff. And again, it's a rat hole that we don't need to go down right now. Both Origin of Symmetry from 2001 and Starlight and Revelations from 2006 were about astronomy and cosmology and quantum physics. Muse fans have even compiled a reading list, books that have inspired Muse in various ways over the years. And while the list does contain something by Zechariah Sitchin, he's the guy who believes that we're all descendants of clones created by ancient alien overlords from the planet Nibiru called the Anunnaki. 
It also features 1984 by George Orwell, Confessions of an Economic Hitman, which is a terrific book, by the way, and The Elegant Universe, which is a proper astronomy book by Brian Greene. Bottom line is that if you start listening to a Muse album, you never know what you might learn. Muse and Supermassive Black Hole, which, if you know your astronomy, is a real thing. The closest one to us, Sagittarius A-star, which is the black hole at the center of our Milky Way, will one day swallow us up into nothing. So uh, just go ahead and ring up that visa bill. Item nine about Muse. We can blame them for all those horrible Twilight books and movies. Author Stephanie Meyer is a huge Muse fan and listened to their music constantly as she wrote. If you look at the second book, New Moon, you will find this. And finally, thank you to the talented musicians who inspire me, particularly the band Muse. There are emotions, scenes, and plot threads in this novel that were born from Muse songs and would not exist without their genius. Then, the third novel, Eclipse, contains this. I am in your debt, rock gods of Muse, for yet another inspiring album. Thank you for continuing to create my favorite writing music. And then in the final novel, Breaking Dawn, uh, we have this. And thanks also to my favorite band, the very aptly named Muse, for providing a saga's worth of inspiration. Several Muse songs have appeared on Twilight movie soundtracks, including this one. Muse with Neutron Star Collision, Love is Forever, from one of those awful Twilight movies. guess they had to do something for Stephanie Meyer. And before you ask, I, I don't think Muse supports either Team Edward or Team Jacob. So, that's nine things about Muse, and I will leave you with a tenth. Matt Bellamy holds a world record for the greatest number of guitars smashed on a single tour. During the 2010 leg of the Resistance Tour, he destroyed... 140 of them. So, there are 10 things about Muse. I hope you can use them. I had to leave out some stuff, like how the band can drink and party like bosses, that uh, bass player Chris Wolstenholme still sometimes plays in a pub band in his hometown, and how drummer Dominic Howard allegedly once used llama toenails as a percussion instrument on a Muse song. But I, I think we can probably save all that stuff for another time. Should you wish to converse about Muse or any other subject that comes up on this program, reach me at alan at alancross.ca. You can also find me through my website, ajournalofmusicalthings.com, and that's where you can also subscribe to my newsletter. You'll get cool music news right in your inbox by 10 a.m. Eastern every weekday. Plus, there's the usual avenues. We've got Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and whatever the case, I would love to connect with you on some level. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts.